Good morning. I'm Clara. I'm teaching this morning. It's nice to see you all. So happy, smiling. We have a new baby. Yes, Drew and Brecca, the mommy, had the baby. Brecca had the baby. Drew just coached her. <laughs> her name is Olivia Grace. Nine pounds. We're just pumping out these big babies. Anyway, there's a cute picture up there. I don't know. But anyway, we're happy. So be praying for them, and I'm sure that some of you might be called to food, right? Okay. That is the best part about having babies is church food. <laughs> People bringing food. Okay, well, that's not the best part. It's a good part. All right. I'm here. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you guys are here. I'm going to start right off with the story from um, during World War II, missionaries Herb and Ruth Klingen and their young son spent years, three years, in a Japanese prison camp in the Philippines. In the diary, um, Herb recorded that his captors murdered, tortured, and starved to death many of their fellow prisoners. Their camp commandant, Konishi, was hated and feared most of all of the captains of this particular prison camp. And in his journal, he wrote this, Kanishi found an inventive way to abuse us even more. He increased the food ration, but gave us pele, unhusked rice. And eating the rice with his razor-sharp outer shell would cause intestinal bleeding, kill us in hours. We had no tools to remove the husk, and doing the job manually by pounding the grain or rolling it with a heavy stick consumed more calories than the rice would supply. It was a death sentence for internees. Now, that very day that Konishi had planned that he was going to gun down the remaining of the prisoners, um, General Douglas MacArthur and his forces liberated them from captivity. So Herb, his wife, and his son were liberated. Now, years later, Herb and Ruth learned that Konishi had been found working as a groundskeeper at a golf course in Manila. He was captured. He was tried against crimes against humanity and then hung. But before his execution, Konishi professed conversion to Christianity, saying he had been deeply affected by the testimony of the Christian missionaries he had persecuted. You know, I love to read stories like this of Christian heroes. who desire, I desire this level of love and commitment to God and to the lost. While they were suffering and were being abused, their lives shine so much with God's love and God's love. The lost, the one, the very ones that were abusing them were the ones that gave their lives over to Christ. Now, when Christians forgive those who have hurt them, when we do not seek revenge from those who abuse us, the world will take notice. Now, we've been going through a series called uh, First Not Our Home. And First Peter was written for some Gentile Christians who were under attack for their newfound faith. They were being ridiculed, marginalized, and um, abused. And they were told, you guys are atheists because you don't worship all the other gods. You only worship one god. You you guys are divisive, and um, you're a threat to society because you don't go with the rest of us now to attend our civic uh, celebrations. Sometimes we're abused. Um, when it was legal, women and slaves were abused for their faith, for their pursuit of Jesus Christ. And there was no one to defend them. 
So Peter writes in his book to these Gentile brothers and sisters, y'all, don't throw in the towel. I know it is difficult, but do not give up. Move on. Keep going. Remember, we're resident aliens. Remember, this is not our home. Persevere. Now, if you were going to predict who was going to win this battle, okay, we're going to say the battle between Christians and the Roman Empire. Which group do you think most likely was going to persevere under the pressure? If you were a betting man in first century, what would you say? Would you say this marginalized group of Christians were going to make it? Or that the Roman Empire that was so formidable and so strong was going to make it? The Roman Empire at the time was huge. It said that they reached their peak in the first century and they, their empire up to that time absorbed and encompassed northern Europe, Middle East, and North Africa. It was a huge amount of land, a huge amount of power. They were wealthy and they boasted of their many religions and many philosophies. Christians, they were outnumbered 10,000 to 1. And this man that they worshipped, this would-be rabbi, Jewish rabbi, who was rejected by his very own people, who was nailed naked on the cross, and now they say he's resurrected? Which one sounds more reasonable to you? Of course, street preacher or Nero? So not only were the Christians competing with this formidable empire and all that Rome represented, but they were having to deal with self-absorbed people. We still have to deal with that. We're self-focused. And Peter in his book is saying Christians, persecuted Christians, first century, 21st century Western Americans, serve something higher than yourself. We're not to be consumed by ourselves, our rights being cozy. Humanity's tendency to focus on it's about me is not what God calls us to. He calls us to die to self-interest, self-indulgence, self-promotion, self-focus, self-centeredness, self-protection. I was looking through the dictionary self. There are so many selfish things there that we tend to do. And Peter speaks to Christians and he calls us live differently. You're not going to fit in with the rest of the world. We're resident aliens, you know. This is not our home. And so we choose to live with a sense of detachment to worldly possessions, worldly pursuits. We choose to not live for ourselves, but to live for something higher than ourselves. And the whole point of Peter is this. When we do this, when we live our lives purposefully like this, serving something much higher and greater than ourselves, the world's going to notice. Our witness, our lives will be so loud that those who once persecuted us or mocked us will be the very ones that say, how did you do it? Okay, we're going to pray. So, Father, I just thank you so much for the richness of 1 Peter and of his life, Lord, and the life of the Christians who he was pastoring. And Father, we thank you for the relevancy of your word in our life today and in our society today. We thank you. You understand. You understand where we're at, Lord. You understand the society that we're in. And you don't shame us. You come to encourage us. And so, Father, I pray for your blessing upon today's um, time. 
that that which I speak, Lord, would be um, healing, comforting, and encouraging to my friends here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, uh, Mariana um, introduced and talked a part of the last chapter of 2 of 1 Peter. But I just want to review a little bit more. Um, I just want to frame it, literally, a little bit different here for what I want to share this morning. Well, here's a, a frame. We're just going to imagine that this frame right up here says Christian citizen. Okay, and over here it says Christian slaves, maybe a Christian employees, employees, yeah. And over here, Christian wives, and here, Christian husbands, okay. And the canvas is a beautiful picture of Jesus, the most stunning person you've ever seen. All right? I'm just going to leave this here so we can look at that. All right. Our roles, our relationships that we have in life are framing a person. They're pointing to a person, and that person is Jesus. How are we to be good citizens when our government is not moral? How am I to be a good wife if my husband's not a Christian? How am I to be a good slave or employee when my boss is unreasonable? And Peter provides a masterpiece, the portrait of a subject that is stunning, Jesus. He is the masterpiece we're to admire. We're not to get caught up on the frame, right? It's not the frame that makes the masterpiece. It's not those roles and relationships. We're just pointing to the masterpiece, Jesus. He is the real vehicle. He is the real person that we look at. And Peter in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, instructs us, slaves, husbands, wives, employees, citizens of Rome, America, remember who you are. You're a royal priest, God's people, the instrument of God, a frame by which to show off, speak out on the most beautiful masterpiece, Jesus. You're to declare to others that you were once a nothing and now you're a somebody. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So how would you do this? And so Peter urges us, live an exemplary life so that our actions will refute prejudices. Now let me just ask, our college students that are here today, in the time that you've been in the university, have you experienced prejudice in the classroom against Christians? Okay. Now, on Tuesday night, I was having a hard time going to sleep. So I picked up a book, which I understand you're not supposed to be doing when you're having a hard time to read, but so be it. So I picked up a book. It was on statistics. So really, this should really put me to sleep. (laughs) I ended up finishing the book because I was so stirred by it. Three-fourths into the book, the book was called Christians Are Hateful Hypocrites and Other Lies You've Been Told. The author says this, In 2007, the Institute for Jewish and Community Research surveyed the religious beliefs of over 1,200 faculty members at various American colleges and universities. This study was looking for anti-Semitism among faculty members, but instead they found something very surprising a strong intolerance toward evangelical Christians. 53% 
of faculty members in our current American universities and colleges reported having negative feelings toward evangelical Christians. And this was far more worse than any opinion they had for any other religion. Muslim, 18%. Atheists, 13%. Buddhist, 4%. Jews, 3%. Then the author of the study concludes this, quote, If not outright prejudice, faculty sentiment about the largest religious group in the American public borders dangerously close. So if you want to find a place where Christians are thought poorly of, go to college. With no little irony, the faculty of America's colleges and universities rally under the banner of tolerance and diversity. But this may not be extended to all religious groups. In fact, whether intentional or not, American college campuses may have fostered climates of open hostility to evangelical students, faculty, and staff who display the religious beliefs, end of quote. Clearly, we need to pray for our college students, our pastors there, our professors there, and the universities there, and our ministers there. Notice now the trend in entertainment or movies in which the Christian values and beliefs are mocked and they're ridiculed. And when's the last time you saw a movie where there was a Christian hero? Or the last time, okay, thank you. What was it called? Book of Eli. Book of Eli. Oh, okay. I did see that. My son-in-law kept saying, Mom, close your eyes now. (laughs) Okay, you can open them now. Close your eyes now. (laughs) But I saw most of it. (laughs) Okay. How about a movie where a virgin woman or a virgin man is applauded for standing true to their convictions not to fornicate? Okay. I think it's our comic relief, yeah. We are ridiculed, marginalized, and mocked for trusting Jesus and wanting to live a life for him. Although we may not be persecuted like the first Christian, Christians were, no, we're not threatened that we're going to be sawed in half or fed to the lions or that we're going to become the torch for the next presidential gala, right? We're not going to be lit up like Nero did, the Christians. But we are being ridiculed and mocked. So how are we to live? How are we to live in a nation or society that mocks our God or our faith? Let's look what Peter says. Verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desire which wars against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So how is that going to work, Peter? My husband's very controlling. My boss is pressuring me to work on Sundays. And I don't agree with this new state proposition. Peter's strategy is beautiful and very simple. Submit. Submit to government authorities. Submit to your husband. Submit to your wife. Submit to your boss. Submit. But but what about the exceptions? Isn't there an exception, Liz, Peter? This can't be God's plan. It cannot be his strategy. We're Americans. We don't submit. We don't defer to other people's opinions. 
and definitely to your vision. No way. But if we're going to be good citizens, we have to submit, right? Where it says 65 miles per hour, we have to submit and not do 85 miles per hour. If we give up our rights not to pay taxes, right? We do that. We pay taxes on our income, even our tips. We give up our rights to hunt without a license. We give up our right to throw the trash wherever we feel like it. Well, those are simple, Pastor Clara. I mean, I agree with those. That's no big deal. I want to know about the exceptions. I will submit to what I agree to. Is that what Peter is saying? So long as you agree? Verses 13 and 14. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake, for every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. And all the times that I have read First Peter, until this series where I've slowed down and really begun to study it in preparation to share from it, I never noticed that First Peter was so evangelistic. It's a very evangelistic book. He wants persecuted Christians, marginalized Christians, mock Christians to witness to the lost world. And his strategy is submission to authority, whether good or bad. God's goal is clear. Whatever role we're in, whatever part of this frame we're talking about, present Jesus as beautiful in the way that he is by living an excellent life. Peter adds a reason for living an excellent life. Do it so that they may see your good deeds. Who is the they? The lost. The lost boss, your lost spouse, your lost parent, the lost policeman, fireman, politician, your lost professor. The word translates see, so they may see your good deeds, is an unusual word. It doesn't just mean a glance, a quick look. It has the sense of intensely looking at, intensely analyzing, and wanting to gaze long periods of time on what is it I'm seeing? What am I looking at? So that they may see. Now, whether we know it or not, unbelievers are watching us all the time. From a distance, paying attention, how do you respond with problems at work? How do you respond when you don't when someone says a dirty joke? How do you dress? How we spend money, how we take care of our children and discipline them? How we respond to tragedy? How we deal with difficult people, a difficult boss, a difficult marriage. Now a supervisor in Fiesta, Texas once said to me, You know, some of my worst employees are Christians. At least when I hire somebody that's not, at least I know what I'm getting. What would they say about you at work? Maybe your boss is good and gentle, and that's great. Submit to them. But maybe your boss is unreasonable. That's a shame, but submit to them. Why? The reason we've been left behind as resident aliens is so that unsafe people will see our godly behavior and our responses and hopefully investigate this God we love. This isn't fair, you say. Why do I have to be, do this? Why am I supposed to be the one that allows people to be mean to me, my boss to mistreat me, 
Why do I have to take all the heat? And Peter addresses that very question. Peter says, seeing yourself as beloved by God, also view yourself as alien and strangers in this wicked world. This world is a very temporary place. We're just traveling by. We're just passing through on our way to a heavenly home, hoping to take as many ugly, mean, demanding, unreasonable people with us, right? And therefore, our mentality about life and how we're to be treated is different than others. This is it. Go for all the gusto. And submitting is one of our evangelistic tools. It's one of God's strategies to shut the mouth of those who scorn Christianity and say there is no God. When we submit to government, submit to our boss, to our unsafe spouse, we're evangelizing. Now, submission is not the same as obedience. Two different Greek words, two different meanings. Submitting is something we choose to do to ourselves on behalf of another. When we submit, we're choosing, not obligated, not forced, to defer to another person's vision. When we submit to our government, we're cheerfully submitting to the vision of our government. This is the primary difference between submission and obedience, a choice. I should obey. I have to obey. I get to submit. I get to bless this person. I get to witness to this person by submitting. Really different. Now, for example, when we're raising kids and they're toddlers, short little phrases, no, no, don't, don't touch, right? And sometimes that phrase has to be accompanied with a little slap when they're going to reach that stove. No, no, don't touch. Now, as a child gets older and their cognitive skills, cognitive skills develop, it's a little bit different. We begin to have dialogue and explain. The stove is very hot, Jax, and you will get burned if you touch the pan on the stove. Now, if you say that to a toddler, by the time you spit it out, it's too late, Right? That when we begin to teach our children about chores and helping around the house, every task is a game. It's fun. They like it. And part of teaching our children to help is to have a good attitude. And so we teach them respect. When we ask to help, yes, Mommy. Now something happens a little bit later where now it becomes a chore, it becomes a have to, and the response is a little bit more like, do I have to? Yes, mom. And the first time my eldest daughter did that, I realized that obedience was not going to cut it anymore. That the ends did not justify the means. The means does not justify the end. The other way. Whatever way it is. It just wasn't going to be enough. And I knew that I needed to begin to teach her submission. It's okay, dear. We're going to make it. But I need to teach you that obedience is not enough. There's something called submission. And it's something that's really going to bless you. You can begin to learn how to do this. You're old enough to comprehend. And so you need to understand the difference. I needed to teach her to submit that it was her choice. And I needed to help her see that when she walked in submission, that life would go well for her. Now, sorry to disappoint you, parents, but submission is not automatic. And how can it be? 
We are self-focused people by nature, aren't we? So Peter talks to citizens and slaves and addresses the ethical issue of submission. And what's weird is the Roman Empire was very big and very powerful. Of course, Peter, we're going to submit to the laws, right? Of course, we're going to obey. No brainer, Peter. But Peter says, no, I'm not talking about obedience. I'm talking about the heart. Submission is a heart issue. I've said this before, and I will say it again. I can guarantee you. But Jesus and God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are after our heart. And submission is about the heart. Cheerfully come alongside the government. There's no virtue in our just obeying out of force or out of obligation. So if you're a slave, submit. Submit? Did I hear you right, Peter? Did you say submit? I mean, one would think that Peter would have used the word obey. But he uses the word submit in relationship to a slave. Now, can you imagine what the slave was thinking? Did I hear him right? Did he say submit? I mean, isn't that something that I do from my heart? That's like I get a choice? I get to choose to do this? And I can imagine that Peter was trying to raise up the status of decency and respect and honor by using the word submit instead of obey in this passage. Slaves, you're evangelists to your masters. Citizens, you are evangelists every single time you submit to the government. Now, I don't know how many of you make it a practice to read ancient literature. But every single time you open the Bible, you are opening an ancient book. And so you might think, well, if that's the only one that you open, you might think that what you read in there, the concepts in there were the norm for those times. But it wasn't. The New Testament was very unique from all other ancient literature. And when it addresses slaves and ethical issues like those, in all other literatures, between masters and slaves, slaves would not be addressed. They talked about masters, but a slave was a donkey. It was a farm implement. It was an it. But Peter viewed and spoke to slaves as if they were human beings, royal priests, holy people, loved by God. When he used those phrases, he had in mind the slaves who were his audience. This was unheard of in ancient literature. Slaves don't have a choice. They obey. They do not submit. Okay, so here we are at the frame. Verse 13, citizens. Verse 18, slaves and employees. Now Peter takes a pause from describing the rest of the frame. And he goes, now let's look at that canvas. It's a masterpiece. It's stunning. Wow, look at the artwork, the detail. It's just breathtaking. Verses 21 to 25. To do this, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And now Peter moves back to the frame in chapter 3. And he's now going to discuss the next two sides. And that's where we're going to start now. 
So I think we should read together. We could. Okay, you're, you're right there with me. Let's read this together. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner life, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, if someone were going to title this chapter, they might want to call it Bearing a Witness in Marriage. And I want to share with you how to misread this passage (laughs) because this text is often misread. Verse 1, Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husband, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of the wives. Now, first way to misread this is wives, you're supposed to submit to every kind of husband, no matter what your husband is like. Whether your husband is a drunk, or whether he is a drug addict, or whether he's physically or verbally abusive. Whether he's not working or not providing for the family or has abandoned you. Whether they're demanding or practicing sexually degrading or sexual dehumanizing activities. Just go along, wives. You subordinate. You're supposed to submit no matter what. The second way to misread this passage is that this passage is describing the ideal structure for a Christian marriage. When two people who are Christians are married, this passage is telling the wife, your duty is to subordinate to your Christian husband. Now, the problem with this is twofold. We're not taking into account verse 1, where it says, Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word. These husbands are not Christians. And they needed to be wooed to the truth of Christ by an exemplary wife. This is not a Christian marriage. Secondly, this kind of read fails to take into account the context of the passage. In the first century in the Greco-Roman world, it was the duty of the wife to take on the husband's religion. So if the husband came home and said, Wife, children, today we're going to be pastafarians. Okay, not to be confused with Rastafarians. And our God is going to be the flying spaghetti monster. You can look this up. It's a parody, but it's there and the, it's very interesting. It would be the assumption of the first century wife to say, oh, yes, of course, dear. That was her responsibility. The Greek philosophers and the Roman philosophers had that expectation and demand on wives. Now, the Romans, even more so than the Greek, demeaned women. In the first century, there was a a book called the Theogony, or actually writings called Theogony, which was like a book of Genesis for the Greeks and later on for the Romans. And it described the creation of woman. 
But unlike Genesis, where the creation of Eve was a loving act of the creator, the story of Pandora's creation in the Theogony is really different. According to the creation account, there was a time when man blissfully existed without woman. After fire was stolen from Zeus, he wanted revenge and decided the most vindictive, horrifying punishment he could dish out on man, and you guessed it, it was woman. Woman was therefore given to man as a curse. Plato had another version of how women came to be. Quote, all those creatures generated as men who proved themselves cowardly and spend their lives in wrongdoing were transformed after second incarnation into women. Hell did not exist for Plato. He figured that if a man was fearful of becoming a woman when he got reincarnated, he would do his best to live a good life. Aristotle wrote that the female is a monstrosity and a deformed male. The Romans never hated women quite as much as the Greek did, but they really had a low view about marriage. And their opinion of women was to keep them under your thumb because women were inferior. Women treated, they were treated not like real people. And you could see this in certain ways um, by how they named their daughters. Now, this is from a book called Why Not Women, and this is a quote. Roman citizens had three names. Okay, Roman citizens had three names, so those are males. Women, however, had only the clan name and the family name. They had no individual names. The Roman female was referred to by the feminine form of her father's family name. So Gaius, Julius Caesar's daughter, was Julia. Marcus, Tullius Cicero's daughter, was Tullia. In fact, so little thought was given on the names for girls, the sisters regularly shared the same one, distinguished only as the elder and the younger, or Martia Segunda and Martia Terial, Martia II and Martia III, and so forth, end of quote. So like Greek women, a Roman woman never came of age. She rather passed from her, the guardianship of her father to the guardianship of her husband. If she was a widow, then she was passed on to another male relative. This because women were considered mentally inferior. Women were silly, over-talkative, unfit for lit literature, literature, excuse me, leadership, and this all backed up by the Roman law. According to Roman law, the husband was absolute authority. In all regards, if he was unchallenged as ruler of the household, and if he decided he did not want Amartya IV, we're done with her. At any point, if he did not want a daughter any longer, he would put her out to die. No government, no community, no wife could stop him. And he had the power to put his wife out on the street, to decide to clothe her or not clothe her, or feed her or not feed her, and the government would back him up. So this is the situation, the culture that Peter is talking to. He was talking to Gentile Christian wives who were once non-believers and now who used to comply to their husbands in all that they said, and now they had become followers of Christ. What are they to do? How do I live, Peter? Not only am I being pressured by my society to change and to go by what they say, I'm being pressured 
by my family and my husband. The pastor put it this way. The first century Gentile Christian wife was in a difficult place. I think that's obvious. Because scripture tells her, quote, she cannot do what God forbids. And she also cannot fail to do what God commands. She's already marginalized because she's a Christian. And now she's doubly marginalized because she's a woman and she's a wife of an unbeliever, which increased the risk of her further abuse because of her faith. So, Peter, how am I supposed to live as a follower of Christ when my husband's not a believer? You know, I'm, I feel this because I talk to women who are in that situation. And Peter's not naive. He knows very well what they're up against. Your life is at risk, dear. So twice Peter tells them, do not give way to fear, 1 Peter 3.6. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, 1 Peter 3.14. And so Peter begins to give them practical advice, how to be a part of this frame and point to the most beautiful of all men. Okay, now there's a part two, and the part two will go deeper into the, those verses so we can get a little bit more understanding on the how-tos. Um, would my brothers and the men in this please stand? I am proud of you, men of God, because this is not how you treat your wives nor the women in your world. And you have changed the course of society because you have stood for God's principle. For me to stand here as a woman and speak and be called pastor is evidence of your love and obedience to God's word and for his people and to those who have been oppressed. Thank you. Thank you for raising your sons and your grandchildren and talking to your friends in a very different way about women. Because you're a follower of Christ. And you've grown to know better. Thank you. And I just want to applaud you for your love for God's people. Would you please be seated? Now I would like the women to stand. doesn't matter if you're married or not married. You're a nobody, right? According to the world. But according to God, you're a holy people. You're a priestess. You're set apart. And part of our weaponry, ladies, is submission. And it is for the men, too, as we'll learn. It's a beautiful evangelistic tool when used by the power of God. And sometimes you have not liked that word. It's been distasteful because it was used in an abusive way in your, your life. And I am very sad about that. <laughs> and I want to pray because I want you to love that word like Jesus did to the point of the cross. He was willing to submit to that point. And when we can get the heart of Jesus about that word, 
our evangelism, our evangelism will be quite different. And God will be able to put you in situations where you will shine beautifully on his behalf. So guys, if you're around gals, just extend your hands to them. You don't need to necessarily touch them unless they're your wife or a daughter or a relative. But just extend your hands to these women. And first of all, I want to say, gals, I'm really sorry for the ways that word has been distorted and been used against you in this life. Parents, men, boyfriends, brothers, maybe if you're in the military, they mock you because you've chosen such a difficult career. And I want to say, gals, let it go. Forgive those who have harmed you. Let it go. Don't let them hold you back anymore from being the most powerful evangelist that you can be in this life. Let go of that boyfriend. Let go of that situation. Let it go. Give it to the cross. Give it to Jesus. Put that person there and say, Lord, will you be the judge? Come, Holy Spirit. Heal them, Father. Heal them. Comfort them, Holy Spirit. And now, Lord, redeem the meaning of submit. Let it never be an ugly word for a woman again. Let it never be like a leash. But, Father, from the heart, release the heart to submit, to cheerfully come alongside, Father, to the vision of another, your vision, your portrait, your masterpiece. We submit to that masterpiece, to your life. And we ask you, Lord, now fill us with a spirit of submission like our Savior Jesus had. Let us be said, oh, she is a beautifully submitted woman of God. Let it be said of us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may sit down now. And, you know, I just felt this morning like y'all might have something you want to say. Not like, well, my opinion is no. I mean, like the Holy Spirit is giving you a sense of something that somebody needs ministry for. They call, some people call it words of knowledge. Um, where you have a sense of what the Holy Spirit, you know, gosh, I came in feeling this, and I just really know it's for somebody, and I want to pray for that person. So I'm just going to ask the Holy Spirit to just remind you of what those were and just give him an opportunity to pray because we have some time, and I think he might want to minister to some other things than just what we talked about. So Holy Spirit, I ask you to come and that you would fill um, us with the giftings and gracelets of your Holy Spirit that you would give words to my brothers and sisters, Lord, to build up, to comfort, to heal, to set free. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So, does anybody have uh, something they want to share?
expound a little bit more on the definition of submit? Because you did in that prayer. Well, that's really good. This is part one of part two. This is the this was my intro <laughs> to what we're going to discuss next week. So I'm going to do what other people do, like soap operas. We've got to find out the rest of the story next week. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel that there have been uh, some people here that um, have been led to a place they didn't expect to go. But it's led by the Spirit and not by man. Although it feels like man, it feels like I'm, I'm um, subjected to someone sending me. Um, God says, be still know that this is my assignment. And um, some, I believe that that's historic, but also there's some people presently going through that process. Once again, I had an aha, like I did yesterday. Um, one of my big life issues has been um, respect and submission, mostly because I grew up in a home where I had a dad, but no parenting. I was never taught what respect, submission, relationships, nothing. So I was always very backwards. And one of the reasons why my husband and I needed to leave was the Lord needed to put me in time out to learn about respect and submission. Um I had had a, a disagreement with the pastor, but I guess he wanted to get to the heart part, mm-hmm. you know, the joyful. And he's been working on me for the past couple of years, you know, shut up and follow. Okay, now I'm getting to the point, okay, joyfully do it because you love the person. Do it out of reverence, even for a guy with clay feet or whatever, but do it out of love. And also the why, what um, what she had said about wives um, submitting to their husbands. It's like here I've been like wondering how do I get my non-believing friends to want God? You know how they get? How do we get them to say to, to bow down and say yes, God? It's like, oh, light bulb, you show how to submit to the people they can see to get their heart ready to bow down and submit to the God they may not be able to yet see. Are they also to be... Submitted. Part B. Part two. Next Sunday. Because it just uh, it seems to me that it's only women the ones to Okay. When you come next meet. week. You come next week. Good. Oh, okay. 
But, you know, <laughs> this is going to rile some of you, but I just got to say this. <laughs> the hate the sin, but love the sinner. So what was the guy? Mark Laurie, comedian, Christian comedian, said, why don't we concentrate on hating our sin and loving the sinner? And so if we approach this topic with, what's been done against me? We missed the point. And let's love the sinner. And that's going to help us through this process. It will help us in dealing with other processes we're going through. So. Well, you know, this is good because, you know, I can make sure to Part B says all these things. <laughs> Picking notes. <laughs> David? I don't know if this is part C or <laughs> D or, or what. Um, I think part of it is just um, the humble nature of Clara. Um, the list that she went through of bosses, husbands, wives, friends, neighbors, whatever, I want to add one for you. Pastors. I want to... I've known Randy and Clara for right at 15 years, and I've never known anyone that cared as deeply about anything as these two care about this church and you. They agonize over you in prayer. They work their tails off on behalf of us, <laughs> and um, part of submitting is not automatically in, in this, this I think applies to the other categories as well but don't automatically go to a place of de- being defensive um, maybe what they have to say is on target and maybe you know you need to look at what they were saying um, goes for uh, community group leaders and any other you know the hierarchy you know, and it's not, you know, nobody's going to say bow down. You know, we're going to, leadership is going to act in love as best they can, but we're all human too. <laughs> God's not through with us either. So I just, I needed to add that. Mm-hmm. And I do have, I have something ministry wise. I'll try not to get too graphic, but this morning when I was praying, um, I was thinking about the armor of God and specifically the shield of faith that extinguishes the fiery darts sent by the enemy. Now, that's what the Word says. And in a spiritual sense, that's probably a good description of what happens. But it's probably kind of hard. I mean, anybody had a flaming arrow hit them lately? <laughs> Seen one? I mean, even in a movie lately, you know? Um, the Lord gave me a, a, a better description, maybe, that we can relate to more better in this day and time. How many, if, does everybody knows what monkeys are, right? It's pretty common. Monkeys. Do you know what a monkey is? Okay, well. 
um, so I picture I got a, a picture of a monkey, but then it developed into looking at uh, monkeys at the zoo. And what do they do sometimes if they're not happy with people looking in at them or whatever the situation is? Maybe they're not happy with the other monkeys in their cage. What? That could be one response, but another response is they throw their poop at each other and at people through the bars. And it just like it just hit me. That's a perfect description of what the enemy does to us. You know, I don't want to use the graphic word. Everybody's got their own <laughs> vocabulary and can come up with it. But isn't that a great metaphor? I mean, stuff happens, you know. And but that's the a lot of it is the enemy throwing that stuff at us. And so, um, did you want to okay. minister? Um, yeah. Just how many? Can anybody relate to that? Just hands. Oh come on. <laughs> um, Part of the purpose of the teaching and the prophetic and the apostolic and all the the other fivefold gifts, as they were, probably not to get have too much Christianese here, um, is to equip the saints. And so I want to uh, anyone that's willing to um, do this exercise. You know, it's not required, but. I think it will help equip you. If you could, if you relate with that, you feel like you've had some stuff thrown at you recently, I'd like for you to stand. I want to give you a prayer that you can pray and an action that you can do anytime. Um, I believe even non-believers can do this because the Bible says that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. Um, It's very simple. We don't have to shout and stomp. Every once in a while we've got to do that, but most of the time we don't. Um, we just have to let the enemy know, <laughs> you know, that we know our authority. There's a, um, I think it's in Acts 16. I looked it up the other day. There, there were some uh, apparently new Christians that went up against some <laughs> demonic forces and got routed. And actually, one of the demons spoke to them. And says, we know Jesus, and we know Paul, but we don't know you. And so part of equipping, you know, we, is that you, so that you can put stuff into action, okay? And when the, it's going to, it might take a little bit of exercising your authority so that the enemy understands that you understand your authority, your place of authority. You have all the authority in the world, 
You know, there could be a policeman, badge and gun and all, sitting on the front chair over here. Is that going to stop any traffic out there on Bandera? No, he's got great authority, but he's not, you know, he's not in the right place. So, um, so just very simply, just ask the Holy Spirit to come. And um, a word that um, we think of a lot is that we've been slimed. And all you have to do is just say, Holy Spirit, come, wash over me, de-slime me in Jesus' name. And then you can give, just shake your hand like that and give it a little extra emphasis. So um, I want to pray that prayer, and then you guys shake your hands, okay? So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and that you would touch each one of these that are standing, Lord, and even those that, that aren't standing, Lord, I just thank you for your love, that above all, you are love. And so fill this place with your love. Holy Spirit, wash over everyone here. And de-slime them now in Jesus' name. Okay, it's done. You're going to see a change. I'm going to just speak that. I'm just going to speak that out. You're going to see a change, and that's going to give you evidence that that works so that you can do it again. I must must be. (laughs) I don't remember getting tagged, but um, are there any other, were there any other words that came that people haven't shared yet? Um, when worship was going, I was seeing a picture of ladies, and they had ball and chain on their legs. So I said, okay, where is this teaching going? Where is this going? And then when Clara started to talk about the women and how they were treated and things like that. And the Lord was in front of the person, people, that had the ball and chain, and he was trying to dance with them. He shakes his head, I can't dance like this. So he brought in his angels, and they cut the chains. They released the bondage, whatever whatever the bondage is, whatever that means, that the Lord is definitely... Releasing us. Just a tiny testimony. I had a situation uh, when we were in ministry where uh, someone came in and, and just directed and stated, you have to submit and we're, and we're going this way, period. And it was a, a, a very harsh, unloving uh, demand. And... Uh, I, what I learned was I followed that. I felt handcuffed and I followed the orders. But what I learned over that journey was that um, I chose to cooperate in, at first in duty, but ultimately that God changed my heart and showed me that no one could make me submit, 
that it was a heart issue, that it was a volunteer surrender of my will and my love. And that situation, as ugly as it was, was a healing situation to say, I have the freedom to say I will go that way. Good. Thank you, Alice. Anyone else? What What was the word that you gave earlier, Alice, about... Um, but that God was very using both the pain of that and the understanding of how we can react to the future. Okay. There's a first there's what can I do with the past and then in the future how can I respond to that? Okay. All right, thank you. Twilight, just because like they asked about like was there anything in Hollywood that like talked about virginity being great? Like yeah, the Twilight movies, because in that movie it was one woman who was not giving into her urges who eventually got the guy. But then in real life, Kristen Stewart did not want to submit to Robin Pattinson; she wanted to submit to some other director. And I think that's really the key thing we have to look here for. It's like you submit to your husbands; you don't submit to anyone else. That's really the sin of, like, you know, the real specific sin of women here. It's like we want to submit to, oh, I want to go submit to my employer. I want to go submit to my book club. I want to submit to some other group. I want to submit to everybody except the one who knows me. And I think that's, like, exactly the same thing as Christians do. Like, we're Christians. It's like we want to submit to the world. We want to submit to somebody who can speak well. We want to submit to everybody except what our pastor's saying right there. Or we want us like, you know, just like we want to submit to everybody but our husband, like Christians want to submit to everybody but Christ. Oh, he knows so much. Oh, he's been, he's, he's very experienced. He's done all these sorts of things. Like, no, you submit to Christ, you submit to his word, you submit to nothing else. Binding yourself to one thing makes you free to do all these other things. And that's really the key of submission. You're not going to learn unless you learn from one person. You try to learn from everybody at once, you're just going to be dissolute floating in the breeze, submitting to one thing one time and one thing another time, and your submission is going to be useless. So I think like really submitting to someone, it very much matters what you submit to. That's good, Israel. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, reminds me of the scripture where the double-minded man is of no mind at all, if I got that right. It's something like that. Um, what I want to do is um, we're going to wrap up the service. 
have some folks um, come up and be ready to pray for people. And I want to invite um, those that have not received ministry, or even if you have, if you want some more, to come on up. But I want to, um, you know, if any of those words um, have really touched you, and I, I want to, um, what, what Kitty was talking about with the money, and I got a picture of a ship, and I've had this for a couple of days now, of a ship that's like a ground, you know. And so the ship has come in, but it can't do what it's supposed to do because it's a ground. And so we need the water to rise. And um, I think that's what some of us need in our lives is some additional watering so that our ships can float so that we can do what we're supposed to do. So... Um, love you all. Thank you for your patience and your submission. <laughs> and we will see you next week. <laughs>